0: Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bugs.
1: Hey everyone, Season 4 of the Performance Nutrition Podcast, bringing you evidence-based insights from world leading experts to take your nutrition game to the next level. On today's show, folks, I'll be speaking with dietitian nutritionist Deanna Rogers, who lives on a working organic farm and is the co-author of the new book Sacred Cow, out next week, along with Mr. Rob Wolf and the director of the upcoming film by the same name. In this episode, we're going to dip our toe into numerous areas of the Sacred Cow book, the dietary patterns of hunter-gatherer societies around the world the mid-Victorian dietary shift and the consequences for our health, as well as the impact of industrial agriculture on the environment. Deanna also discusses the water and methane footprint of cattle, the potential for carbon sequestration in the ground, as well as the antibiotic use in conventional farming and the impacts on human health. Deanna also does a thorough treatment in the book of the morality issue when it comes to consuming animal products, highlighting the cycle of life and death in nature, amongst many, many more things. A really fascinating interview here with Diana. Um, this topic of morality and ethics around our food and food supply is definitely something we'll be diving into more deeply uh, throughout the rest of the year. So enjoy this episode. Uh, you can find the links and the podcast summary in the show notes, as usual, at Podcast.com. And if you're interested in more... Uh, You can circle back to my interview with Mr. Rob Wolf back in season one, episode number 11 on personalized nutrition and why your brain is wired to eat. Terrific. This episode is sponsored by my recent book, Peak. We actually recently hit 12 months in a row as a number one bestseller on Audible and Amazon. So appreciate the support and all the reviews left by readers, such as this one by Mr. M. Brooks. Peak is a fascinating book crammed full of great knowledge. One of the best sports performance books I have ever read. Much appreciated there, uh, Mr. Brooks. Please keep your reviews coming on Amazon and Audible. Very, very much appreciated. And our last quick announcement here is we will be releasing the Peak online course this fall. So if you're a strength coach, nutritionist, practitioner out there who wants to upgrade your performance nutrition skills from some of the best experts from around the world, uh, earn CE credits along the way, then definitely check that out. You can sign up for the presale list at drbubs.com forward slash peak or over at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org and be the first to hear when it drops and also get yourself a nice discount as well. All right, let's do this season four, episode 12 with Deanna Rogers. Enjoy. Deanna, thanks so much for taking the time today.
0: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Terrific. Well, maybe we can, uh, start the conversation here today by you telling listeners a little bit more about your background and your journey mm-hmm. to where you're at today.
0: Sure. Um, uh, I, um, let's see how far back to go and how long, to talk. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. I, um, I found out when I was 26 that I had celiac disease. Um, and that, uh, answers a lot of questions that I, and, and health issues that I had growing up. And, um, And so I uh, went gluten-free but still had some blood sugar issues and then kind of found, um, you know, the Weston A. Price Whole Foods Paleo type template Mm -hmm. that really solved the rest of the issues for me. And I decided to change my career from marketing and PR into um, becoming a dietitian. So um, I went back to school and... um, I now have a clinical practice uh, where I help people largely with GI issues and blood sugar issues uh, and weight loss uh, in uh, Concord, Massachusetts. And then I also um, have lived for the last 18 years on an organic farm that raises vegetables and pasture-raised meats. And so my latest book and film project really focuses on, you know, the role animals have in our food system. Are they healthy to eat? Um, Well, I I shouldn't say even that I'm asking the question. I am saying (laughs) they're healthy to eat. Um, They can be uh, a good thing for our uh, environment when managed well and that ethically, um, there really is no life without death. And so our best opportunity is to give the animals a good life and um, a swift and humane death. Um, and so I really challenge the idea that a plant-based diet is the diet of least harm.
1: Yeah, it's such a, you know, looking forward to diving into the topic here, obviously around animal protein, meat consumption, but as you mentioned, the connection with the environment, you know, as we get into even, you know, beliefs, there's so many misconceptions, preconceptions, myths, emotions around, um, meat and animal, um, products. Maybe let's start from an evolutionary perspective and talk about Mm -hmm. longevity and you know the hunter-gatherer tribes around the world when we look at those tribes these are these are societies that almost exclusively to my knowledge included animal products you know across these different pockets around the world and so i'm just curious in your work and research is that something you know being a weston a price um Mm -hmm. advocate you know is that something that's that resonated with you early on or is that something that through your research that became more more prominent
0: Yeah, I mean um, uh, Rob's book, The Paleo Solution, also um, was a pivotal book for me in my own diet and also just kind of um, looking at nutrition from an evolutionary lens and actually, um, you know, as we move into the environmental section of the book, it really is also looking at things from an an evolutionary lens, you know, how do animals move in nature and how can we mimic that through our food production. Um, but what we see when we look back is, um, you know, no processed foods, um, uh, lots of roots and tubers, but also lots of animal products, um, and lots of animal fat, lots of animal protein, organ meat consumption. Um, and we don't have any examples of a just gatherer society. There were hunter gatherer societies. Um, and so we've been eating meat for the last three and a half million years and, um, so it's really hard for me to see how um, people are blaming meat for our modern health conditions when, you know, diabetes was just not something that was prevalent um, back in those days. Now, um, longevity was um, was not as long, but when you factor out the infant mortality rate, um, I mean, we have things today like antibiotics, um, shelter, and... Uh, hospitals to deliver babies in. So um, when you factor out the infant mortality rate, um, the folks that actually, you know, grew to adulthood made it quite long um, Mm -hmm. without uh, a lot of the modern chronic diseases that we see today. Um, As soon as we started farming about 10,000 years ago, we immediately got shorter and sicker as a, as a culture um and it's just gotten progressively worse since then especially over the last 100 years as we've shifted now to um more processed foods more indoor work more sedentary lifestyle uh less sleep and um and really you know people are concerned about our health um and unfortunately um because we're uncomfortable with the idea of death and we've really separated ourselves from agriculture Um, meat has become an unfair scapegoat for a lot of the blame. um, uh, And uh, the studies vilifying meat from a health perspective are really just based on these population studies that um, you can't actually draw a cause from. So when you look at a typical vegetarian and then a typical um, omnivore, like a standard American diet omnivore... um, you know, the omnivore is much more likely to smoke cigarettes, to not exercise as much, to, um, you know, not meditate, things like that. Uh, uh, your typical vegetarian shops at health food stores, they um, they eat a lot more fruits and vegetables even than a, than a typical uh, omnivore of course, but um, but when we look at omnivores and vegetarians that shop at health food stores and compare longevity between those two populations, so sort of adjusting for lifestyle factors, what we see is really no difference at all in longevity between um, folks who eat meat and folks who don't.
1: Yeah, it's interesting when we have this evolutionary rationale for, for animal protein consumption, looking back at the you know, hunter-gatherer tribes around the world and throughout evolution, and then, you know, we start to see like as you mentioned, observational studies showing um, association between various things, and you hear a lot of things bandied about around cancer, or, or as we talk here, longevity. And, and just as you mentioned, when we start to to tease out some of these uh, confounding factors, you know, we don't see any difference in, in longevity between um, vegetarians and omnivores. And this is where that idea that again, meat is going to be adverse for our health is um, is a notion that's surprising that it's gained so much traction. And, you know, you talked a lot about, or you've mentioned here sort of um, growth rates and height across generations, mm-hmm. and that's obviously something that um, typically defines a healthy diet when we see these um, growth rates increasing from generation to generation. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, that, that mid-Victorian diet in that late 1800s and early 1900s when, when our dietary pattern shifted and some of the consequences there?
0: Sure. Um, and, and this is really something that Rob goes off on a lot, um, mostly. So he's the one who wrote most of that section, but I can certainly address it. So, um, you know, it's really hard to put people in a lab and, um, and, you know, just, you know, have one group eat meat and the other one eat a similar diet, but without meat. And then, um, you know, see what happens over time. But this mid-Victorian diet is interesting because it is a natural experiment. It's um, uh, in the mid-Victorian era, people had a large shift in their diet and they ate a lot more fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, they had a very high caloric intake, um, much more food than even the typical American is eating today. Um, but the diet had um, a, a ton of animal products as well. Um, and their health got significantly better and it lasted over, um, you know, a couple generations. And then as soon as, um, the industrial revolution happened and, um, people started eating, uh, you know, a lot more, um, uh, sugar and, um, refined carbs and things like that, the diet got worse again. Um, and so we can see that, um, you know, meat isn't necessarily the main driver in that in that study. It was really uh, sugar and process, and you know, processed flours and things like that.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's interesting when we look at different populations around the world as well, and when we see rural areas, and places in Africa where you know children who do have less access to, to animal proteins, eggs, things like that. Again, we see these similar reductions in things like growth rates. So, obviously, when we talk about the value of protein and the value of all the The micronutrients and the nutrient density of of animal proteins is so crucial and if we obviously maybe come back to this topic around you know red meat if we think about how much we're consuming you know Americans Canadians and uh, in the UK probably very similar consumption rates are we have we increased our intake over the last you know 40 years since the 1970s or or or, or what's what do the statistics Mm -hmm. tell us there?
0: Yeah, so there is an assumption that um, we're eating much more meat than ever before, but actually that's not true. Um, So when we look at the typical American diet, um, once you factor in all the animal products that go into making health food, and all the loss that happens when you cut away um, the bone, you take off the leather, and um, what makes it into America's kitchens is really only about two ounces per person per day. Um, and so, meat consumption has actually had has trended down since the 1970s, and worldwide, it is. It is at a flat line. Um, what we are seeing a lot more of is chicken consumption. And that's because we've been able to produce chicken really, really cheaply and efficiently. Um, and that's partly due to the rise in antibiotic use um, and more factory farms, cheap oil, things like that. Um, and then we see much more um, intake of ultra processed foods and ultra processed oils. And so um, red meat consumption, beef consumption. Is actually not up.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating in your book as well. When you look at just what people are consuming at home and you know, having lived in Europe and obviously being from Canada, you know, we we see the statistics, just as you mentioned in the book there, people about 10% of Americans report liking to cook. And obviously, these are mm-hmm. in stark contrast when we look at a lot of the European countries where, you know. The percentage of spending, household spending on ultra-processed food, in places like France or Italy or Spain is is you know fifteen or eighteen percent, whereas in places like Canada or the U.S. and the U.K. it's upwards of fifty, you know percent or more.
0: Mm-hmm. So obviously,
1: that food preparation piece and being able to cook and enjoy real food is such a um, an important piece in this whole story. You know, as a in, as a clinician, when you're in working with clients, is is this you know a major roadblock that you see as well? <laughs>
0: Yeah. So I live, um, in a suburb of Boston where, you know, people are highly educated and, um, you know, very health conscious and, um, and, you know, a lot of folks are also very worried about the environment and almost nobody is eating red meat around here. Um, and so when I get a new client, it's typically women that come to see me uh, for weight loss. And, um, the, the one thing across the board that I see in almost every single person is low protein intake, um, like dramatically low protein intake. Like they might eat one egg for breakfast and some uh, handful of beans on a salad at lunchtime and then for dinner, um, you know, maybe it's some pasta, uh, you know, it, often there's no, there's no protein even with the dinner. Um, and so when I get them to switch, Um, and really increase their intake of uh, meat and especially getting some iron in them um, from things like red meat. Uh, Their their energy improves, the weight comes off because protein is so satiating that they're not hungry for those other foods anymore. And they just feel so much better.
1: Yeah, it's incredible how when we just think about looking at the protein intake across the board and A lot of people are barely meeting the, you know, the RDA of uh, 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight. And, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, we know as we increase protein, we do increase micronutrient status as well. And so it is amazing when we can start to increase that, just how many different symptoms and and, and conditions we can begin to improve or, or reverse. And, you know, if we talk about that environmental case, now you just mentioned you know, not a lot of people consuming red meat. I hear that more and more now. And, and oftentimes the environment is a big reason why. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is a really obviously foundational piece of, of the book and then the movie. And so, you know, we obviously evolved with plants and animals. And when we talk about ecosystems, it's, you know, the more diverse, the more complex, the better. So could you talk about, you know, when we look at the health of an ecosystem, the, the health and quality of the soil is so important and so tightly intertwined in that story. You know, how do ruminants, how do cows impact that soil?
0: Right. So, um, so all food has an impact on um, soil health. And um, one of the worst things we can do is plow up the land, Um, plant a monocrop without any cover crop at all, so leaving most of the dirt exposed, and then spray it with chemicals that that basically kill the fertility of the soil. But that's what's happening in uh, the majority of industrial agriculture today. Mm -hmm. Um, When we manage grazing animals properly, when we keep the soil covered with a layer of grass and roots, um, when the animals are moved frequently, so they're not overgrazing, but yet not undergrazing patches of grass, when it gets just the right amount of impact, what we see is improved ecosystem function, build, building soil health, um, carbon can be sequestered um, in the soil, and uh, it also increases the water holding capacity of the soil. So um, when it rains, the water doesn't run off, it actually gets absorbed from the so- into the soil.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's such a huge part of the story, isn't it? The fact that the water is actually being absorbed into the ground rather than running off and something that, you know, oftentimes people don't, you know, aren't aware of. And when we talk about cattle, the common concerns that that people have, and again, people are busy with their their day-to-day lives and and work and maybe kids or family friends, and they're hearing these snippets from media and that they do start to resonate around things like, you know, the land required for cattle, the, the water use for cattle, um, you know, maybe if we can start with water, can you outline mm-hmm. how water is being, you know, what kind of footprint that is really
0: mm-hmm. taking
1: up when we talk about cattle?
0: Yes, and so um, the methodology that a lot of people are using when they attribute the water f- footprint to cattle, how much, how much water it takes to for, um, you know, a, a kilo or a pound of beef. Um, unfairly, what they're doing is measuring mostly green water. So there's different types of water. There's gray water, which is wastewater. There's blue water, which is like when you look down, um, at a map, the things that are blue Mm -hmm. lakes, aquifers, and, um, you know, ground, uh, groundwater that you might have to pump up. Uh, and then there's green water, which is rain that will fall regardless of an animal is there or not. Um, 94% of the water footprint for, uh, feedlot finished cattle and 97% of the water footprint for grass fed cattle is green water. That's rain water, um, that would fall on that grass, whether or not, um, an animal was actually chewing it. And so, um, you know, they're absorbing water actually just from the grass that they're eating. Um, there's, there's very little in the way of blue water, um, compared to, you know, a crop, which, uh, you know, some can be rain dependent, but a lot of them are heavily relying on unsustainable aquifers like in California, where, um, the water is just not being replenished at the right uh, rate. It is just being sucked out of the ground. And, um, so what we're seeing is, you know, entire towns that don't have enough water for drinking water, but yet they're still flood irrigating the almonds. They're just pouring water on these almond trees and most of it is getting evaporated. So nuts is one are one of the worst, um, for water, um, and especially that precious blue water that we need. Um, and 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 the that's the that's the kind of water that really counts when you're looking at the footprint of water um with food
1: yeah it's it's interesting that um again, just those associations we have you know almonds people tend to think of obviously plant based and and healthy and of course they are from a nutrition standpoint, but the piece we don't think about when we think of almond milk and 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 just the as you mentioned the amount of water required um to grow these intensive crops i mean um, you know in, in your book you 're talking about production that 's even greater than the typical meat production and even things like rice, avocados, walnuts mm-hmm. you know uh, you mentioned in the book a pound of rice requires four hundred gallons to produce i mean this is these are things that we we don 't tend to match up equally, do we when we when we read things in the, in the media, et cetera
0: exactly, and actually rice um, emits a ton of methane too. Um, but I don't hear like rice-free Fridays. I just hear meat-free <laughs> Mondays. So.
1: Absolutely. Um, that's, well, that's a good segue then to the next one because yeah. emitting methane and in, in cow farts is obviously a, a big topic uh, ironically on um, these days. And so, you know, when we talk about cows emitting too many greenhouse gases, what, what is that, uh, you know, what is that true footprint there?
0: Mhm um so again the methodology is a little skewed and not really fair um so there's a big difference between naturally occurring sort of biogenic methane part of a methane's uh, uh, carbon cycle and then pumping up um locked carbon um that's been sequestered for Ever, um, and then pumping it into the atmosphere, and that's what's happening with fossil fuels. It's a one-way street. They're, they're, you know, extracting ancient carbon, and then they're just pumping it right up. Um, the uh, the methane that is coming from cattle actually um, gets broken down into CO2 and water vapor, which is part of the water cycle. And then the CO2 um, is taken up by the plants. The oxygen is uh, respirated back, back out and that's what we breathe. That carbon um, then becomes part of the grass, part of the roots. And then the roots are also leaking little bits of carbon, which are basically sugars, um, to the microbes in the soil and to the fungal networks in the soil who are then exchanging that carbon for nutrients the plant actually needs to grow. And so they're actually, it's a symbiotic relationship where the the fungi um, are going and mining rocks, breaking down um, all the minerals that the grass needs and and pumping it to the grass in exchange for that carbon, which is what the fungi need. Um, And some of that carbon actually gets sequestered in the soil when the roots die and then grow back again. Um, And we absolutely have to have grazing animals as part of that cycle because if the grass is not biologically broken down, um, what happens is it just keeps on growing and growing and then oxidizes. It just turns brown and lays down. So that's what happens when you have a field with um, no animals on it. After time, the grass will just die. Um, But if we we have uh, animal impact... Uh, their chewing and um, pooping and uh, peeing on the grass is actually beneficial and um, is required in order for healthy grasslands
1: that's a part of the story that doesn't really get told um, very often. we just think of cattle are taking up land these lands are being um, deforested and and not having animals on there would then allow the lands to just naturally replenish themselves. Um, but just as you mentioned, this ecosystem requires these, these different factors. And of course, you know, the soil and, and even the ability to sequester carbon into the soil requires these, um, you know, there's this ecosystem that's been doing this for, for millions of years, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: And if, on that topic around taking up too much land, when we talk about cattle grazing is, is that, you know, obviously there are areas of the world where, you know, forests are being, um, uh, deforested for, for crops. You know, what is that? When we look at the big picture in terms of land and how much land they take up and how that's playing a role in this whole story. Can you touch on that?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's another really big, um, uh, problem. And, um, you know, I'm not definitely advocating for, uh, you know, cutting down the Amazon and, um, burning it and things like that. Um, but the majority of that soy that's being planted there, um, is for the soy oil industry, not for animal feed. Um, and what they're doing with cattle um, when they put them on the land that right after it's been burned is actually to have them graze down the rest of the uh, plant material that didn't get burned so that they can plant soy because they're actually making more money off the soy than, than, than they are off um, cattle. So um, when we look at the overall, um, you know, agricultural land that we have on the planet. Most of that land is not croppable. Mm -hmm. So it's either too hilly, too rocky, um, too brittle, too hot, too dry um, for us to be able to plant uh, corn and rice and uh, soy and wheat. Um, and so that's really um, the arable land that we have available is about one-third of our agricultural land. The rest is really only suitable for grazing animals. So uh, that's why in Mongolia, the populations have uh, traditionally been herding populations. So they they move with their pastoralists. They move with the cattle. Um, you can't really plow up the land in Mongolia and and turn it into cropland. Um and so, um, so those of us who live in America, we're used to flying over the Midwest and looking down and seeing squares yeah, of, for sure. uh, you know, Earth. patchwork of squares, uh, but that's not a naturally occurring system and that can't occur on most of our, of the earth's surface. Um, yeah, interestingly, even with the beef cattle population in the U.S., 85% of our current beef cattle are grazing on land that we can't crop. Incredible. Um, so, that our cattle are not born on a feedlot and live their entire lives on a feedlot. Some of them are finished on a feedlot. Um, but even when they're finished on a feedlot, lots of uh, what they're taking in um, – our uh, crop, what they call crop residue. So extra corn husks from the ethanol industry, um, pea the, the outer casing of peas from the pea protein industry, things like that, things that really have no other use in our food system other than feeding it to animals that can digest that and turn that into protein. So pigs can't do that. Chickens can't do that. Only ruminant animals can do that. Um, so, uh, so they're a net protein upcycler and, um, it really only takes about, um, two and a half pounds of grain per pound of meat, um, which is about the same as chicken. Um, and red meat is way more nutrient dense than chicken. Um, chicken is very high in omega sixes, which are the inflammatory fats. Um, and, uh, you know, ethically, too, when, when we're considering, you know, animal welfare, chickens 100% of the time are living indoors um, in really crowded conditions where, um, you know, cattle, if they're finished on a feedlot, they're not in cages. They can still walk around and it's, um, it's just, the you know, like the last about three months of their lives, um, most of their life is actually spent on pasture. Mm-hmm. um but there are really good environmental and ethical reasons why uh, 100% grass-fed animals are even better and so um actually in our film Sacred Cow we visited with James Rebanks who is a sheep farmer in northern England in Matterdale and um and you know it's just really interesting that you know people want rural England to stay that way mm-hmm. they want the landscapes like that but then they're not willing to support um, you know, the, the farmers that are working that land, um, and, and pay for the meat that, that comes off that land, you know, they're still choosing cheap meat. Um, and that's really unfortunate. And so, um, you know, farmers like James are actually improving the landscape with, uh, their farming practices.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing the layers that you start to get to in this conversation around environment, because then we, Talk about government and subsidies that we give to to various farmers and or the environmental groups, and where those monies are going. To you know, whom are we supporting to be able to provide individuals like that with more of a um, a backing to be able to support that livelihood and, and help with uh, you know even the cost of some of those products. Now, you know, you mentioned chicken, which is obviously we hear that all the time. I mean, I'm sure you hear that with clients as well. You know, if, if trying to get healthier, I'm eating more chicken, less beef. Um, You know, when we talk about this ecosystem and you touched on it there a minute ago, you know, how, what's the role of things like fowl and chickens in this ecosystem when we talk about the soil and and ruminants, what role do, do chickens play?
0: Um, So um, on our farm, we do pasture-raised chickens for eggs, and um, they live in these chicken houses. And um, chickens are really great at fertilizing the land as well. And, um, you know, they're scratching, they're pecking, they're looking for bugs, and they're pooping, um, which is uh, putting nitrogen into the soil. Um, And a lot of farmers are actually – they follow – um, their cattle herd with, um, their chickens. Because, um, if you, um, you know, watch any nature shows and you look at what's happening on the African Serengeti, for example, what you see is when the wildebeests or zebras move on, the birds come and they're picking through, Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're picking little, uh, worms and things like that out of, out of the manure from the animals. And, um, you know, upcycling that into their own bodies. And so, uh, there is a way to raise chickens in a, in a, in a pasture, you know, regenerative way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot more expensive though. Um, like grass fed beef is more expensive than, than typical beef, but pastured chicken is way more expensive than a typical chicken. Um, in the i S I've, I've seen chicken for like a dollar 99 a pound, mm-hmm. um, which is like ridiculously cheap. Um, a pastured chicken, like a whole chicken is, going to be closer to like 25, $30, wow. um, for a whole chicken. Um, and so, you know, uh, way back chickens used to be a, a delicacy. They used to be something that people ate very rarely, um, because they were valued for their eggs. And, um, you know, we just didn't grow them a lot for meat, but, um, now that we have cheap antibiotics and can really pack them into these chicken houses and, um, you know, pump them out so quickly. A a modern broiler chicken only lives five weeks. Um, And if you don't kill it by five weeks, it's going to die of a heart attack anyway, because it's just such an unnatural creature that it can't even support its own body weight. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyone can just Google like what a broiler chicken looks like. They're these big white fat animals that um, have bow legs basically because they just aren't even anything close to a natural animal. Um, and so it's really unfortunate that that's, that's what people are eating, but that's, um, that's what we've been told is, you know, low fat, boneless, skinless chicken breast is much healthier for you than, um, you know, a greasy steak.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously it sounds, um, you know, for, for the health and welfare of the animal. And, and even when we talk about that nutrient quality, those sacrifices all across the board there. And, you know, you, you touched on conventional beef versus grass fed beef when we look at you know the the nutrient differences between those 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 types of of meats, you know, are there many, or are, is there a stark contrast between one over the other?
0: So when we're looking just at straight nutrients, there isn't a huge difference between grass-fed and typical beef, unfortunately. I'd love for it to, to be true because that would help make case for grass-fed beef in, in every way. Um, but there just isn't a massive, massive difference between grass-fed and typical beef. Um, there is some more omega-3s, but beef is a not a great source of omega-3s to begin with. And so that's like saying, you know, two pennies is twice as much money as one penny, mm-hmm. but... Two pennies is not a lot of money um, or whatever you have in England, the coins <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and so um, so really, you know, I, I just encourage people to buy the best meat they can afford. If they have access to good local grass-fed beef, please support their their local farmer because um, we need our agriculture si- system to change. And, um, and that's only going to happen if people are purchasing it.
1: Yeah, and I guess that leads into the question around, you know, often people will, will, will not buy, you know, conventional beef because they think it's, it's not as quote-unquote clean or, or due to things like antibiotic use. You know, can you, can you speak to that? And, and are these legitimate mm-hmm. concerns or are these things that become uh, overblown throughout, uh, you know, being moved around the, you know, social media, etc.?
0: Hmm. Um, antibiotic use in the livestock industry is a concern from an environmental perspective because um, and from a human health perspective um, from the point of view of antibiotic resistance yeah. when the, an- the antibiotics are then going through their system, they're pooping them out and then that gets into our waterways and um, into the environment. Um, but when we're looking at um, steak uh, like you would buy, find in a grocery store just from a typical, uh, you know, more of an industrial um, source. Uh, th- there's not evidence that I could find that, um, you know, you're going to be eating antibiotic residue from eating that steak or hormone residue from from that. And I also did not find um, evidence uh, in the peer-reviewed literature that you're more likely to get something like E. coli um, from, uh, you know typical beef versus when you eat grass-fed beef um, and actually you're far more likely to get poison from salmonella from chicken than you are from um, any foodborne illness that you might get from cattle.
1: Terrific and you know when we look at another common question to throw a few more here at you if you see you've heard these as well you know being expensive to eat things like meat. Um, mm-hmm. and of course when we do compare it even to things now and we see you know the, the alternative burgers that beyond um, beyond Burger, that's come out plant-based burger. We're talking about you know th- those processed burgers actually being far more expensive than um, than things like you know uh, beef, uh, steak, etc. You know, where where mm-hmm. does beef stack up with a lot of the common foods around the actual cost?
0: Yeah. So in the, in the U S anyway, um, when I looked at the average, uh, price, I went to walmart.com, um, which is a, a big box store here and, um, or, uh, beyond burger was twice as expensive per pound as organic grass fed beef. Um, but what they do is they sell it in the half pound, uh, increment mm-hmm. and they also put it in a bigger package. So it looks like you're getting the same, if, if not more for an equal price um, to meat. Um, but in reality it's actually twice as expensive. Um, uh, do people do complain about the price of better meats? Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of forces at play there. There's a lot of crop subsidies that are happening in the U S um, you know, making things like corn very, very cheap to feed to livestock. Um, and you know it takes longer it takes longer to finish uh, an animal on grass than it does to send them to a feedlot where they can they can be finished very quickly mm-hmm. um, and and also you know you need to you know we're, we're also not paying for soil destruction we're not paying for habitat destruction um, we're not paying for you know burning of the of the amazon mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, but we will pay down the road in health if we're not eating, um, really good nutrient dense food. And so, um, you know, our health is really the most important thing we have. And so again, I always encourage people to buy the highest quality food they can possibly access.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a tremendous, um, you know, in your book part two there, the environmental case for better meat is, is just a tremendous read in, in terms of all the the nuances that you cover and, and really you know, fascinating is, is the last section, you know, the ethical case for better meat. I think this is obviously something that we don't hear nearly as much at the moment. And, you know, you have a chapter talking about, is it, is eating animals immoral? Can you Mm -hmm. touch on that with listeners?
0: Sure. In the book, we look at, you know, the arguments like sentience, should we be um, killing something that can feel like humans Um, or least harm? What is a diet of least harm? And, um, and, you know, every way we were looking at it, the the reality is um, things die for us to live. Um, Even in the most beautiful organic farm that's, um, you know, everything's harvested by hippies. and Sunshine, rainbows. Yeah, sunshine and rainbows and unicorns everywhere. Things are dying. Uh, Life is only possible with death. Uh, Soil is death. That's what it is. It's decomposing things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... um, you know, in order to make a field for um a crop to happen, you have to annihilate whatever lived there before because, you know, fields for cropping um are not natural. Um and there are, you know, areas of grasslands, but there's tons of life in a grassland. And um if anyone's ever visited a conventional farm um and, and seen you know what it's like to like step onto a, a field of corn or, or soy. Um, there's not many animals that live on those fields, um, and through the harvesting um, with tractors and the chemical spraying, um, we're losing pollinators. We're we're losing the field mice. Um, if we have less pollinators, then we have less birds that would eat those insects. Um, and you know, with all the runoff that we're causing from having open soil uh, and uh, chemicals that get um, run off into rivers, then we're really destroying the environment. We're, um, poisoning fish, the animals that there's lots of animals that rely on that fish. Um, and even trees rely on, um, like in, in areas where they're spawning salmon and the, the bears eat the fish, they throw the carcass, um, on the river banks and the tree, the The trees actually are able to absorb those nutrients. Incredible! Um, You know, we use a lot of, uh, because we live near the coast here, we use a lot of fish emulsion on our fields um, because it's just so nutrient dense for our plants. They love it.
1: Incredible. And, you know, in in researching the book and and obviously doing the film as well, what were some of the things for you going around doing the filming that really, you know, stood out or or really impacted you?
0: Um. (laughs) Honestly, how hard it is to raise money to make a film, um, how exhausting it is to make <laughs> yeah. a film, um, how tiring it is, uh, how it's just a horrible way to make money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, those are all the things I'm thinking about right now. Yeah, no, for um, sure. I sure to think of it. It was definitely fun, um, to travel to places that weren't necessarily on my bucket list. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I probably would not normally go to Chihuahua, Mexico for fun. Cool. Um, uh, but, um, it was pretty amazing to visit the, this ranch in Mexico that we went to. It was amazing. I mean, uh, you know, the late district in England is on lots of people's bucket list and, um, it was really magical to go there. Um, we went to Belgium. Um, we went all over the U S we were, spent a lot of time in Indiana. Um, so it was, it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot about, um, being a producer and a director through this process, Um, I'm not sure I'd ever do this again, (laughs) given (laughs) um, everything I know now, but I'm really happy I did it. And, um, and I hope people, you know, get something out of it.
1: Amazing. And, you know, to wrap things up here, and again, there's so much detail and so much nuance in the book, it's tremendous. And with, you know, for me, clients, athletes, uh, you know, practitioners, people want to have a healthy planet, people want to improve their health. And, and, you know, there's, there's all these conflicting um, things out there in terms of media, et cetera. And so, you know, a really great resource for folks, but this idea of of what can we do to help, you know, improve our health, feed the world. So, you know, what are some of the take home messages that you, that you share with the readers at the end of the book?
0: Yeah. I mean, there's things you can do for yourself, like, um, you know, keeping yourself healthy, um, not being a burden on our system financially or our healthcare system. Uh, don't get yourself into debt. Um, and, and also just, you know, supporting, uh, the best agriculture that you're able to support. So, um, you know, buying from local farmers, um, maybe use donating, maybe it's working and volunteering on a farm. Um, maybe if you're a graphic designer and, 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 not very handy in the field, maybe you could make a pharma website, something like that. But I think we all need to be, um, supporting this very expensive process of, um, of fixing our food system. And, um, we can really only do that if that's something that we feel is important. So amazing. Well, listen, um,
1: I appreciate you yeah. taking the time and I look forward to seeing the film when it comes out and where could people get more information about the book, about the film and, and about yourself and your background.
0: Sure. Um, sacred cow.info is where we have all the information about the book and film, and, um, I, they can also sign up for a newsletter there. Uh, my clinical practice is, uh, sustainabledish.com, and I post recipes and, and, um, not as much meat centric, uh, information there. Um, and then I'm most active on Instagram. So, um, you can find me at sustainable dish. And then the book is available where, most books are sold. I know it's on Amazon um, and uh, we'd love for folks to um, not only buy the book, but also leave us a good review on Amazon if you could, because they actually, um, they, that really matters. So um, we appreciate everyone's support.
1: Tremendous. So well, we'll definitely include those links. And again, a massive thank you for all the time you put into the book and the film and, and really, really important work. So, so thank you for that as well.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day.
1: Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. If you enjoyed the content, please subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform to show your support. Also, a special note, this summer we'll be launching an online course centered around the work from my new book, Peak. So if you enjoyed the book and looking for a deeper dive into continuing education in performance nutrition, as well as continuing education units, for strength coaches, dietitians, practitioners, but head over to athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org and sign up to our pre-sale list. you will be the first to hear about when we launch this exciting course. Lastly, if you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, be sure to reach out on social media at Dr. Bubbs and fire away with those questions and comments.